It's beginning to feel a lot like budget. This week, while everything is blanketed in our regularly scheduled November Ice Age, we follow up on the poor climate change budgeting. Plus, there was $5 million in grants for downtown vibrancy that got spent. We'll take a look at what got funded. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 198. Mac, you were one of the first people basically ever on Twitter. Listeners may also remember that you invented, literally, the Yeg hashtag. You were the first one to ever tweet it. How is it feeling knowing that that era in your life is now over? <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Wow, Twitter already felt like a pretty negative place and a place that I didn't want to spend a lot of time. And, you know, this little bit of uh, Elon Musk turmoil is making it even more so. I'm there because it's useful still, but for how much longer, I don't know. I've had a, a blue check mark for a while, but now all of a sudden those are meaningless too. Well, we paid $8 and this next segment is blue checkmarked for funny. The city is announcing that the $18 million Windermere Fire Hall with geothermal heating and a 382 panel solar array is the city's first net zero building because before building the fire hall, an equal square footage was set ablaze via arson. With Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter putting the future of the social media site in jeopardy, also ran candidates for the next municipal election have been left scrambling. The citizens who plan to run and eventually get less than 5% of the vote are now hustling to find a new social media site to spend their days building up their follower count so that, come 2025, they can wonder why their social media presence didn't translate to votes. The city of Edmonton declared the first winter parking ban this week, which prohibited parking on arterial roadways and many bus routes. The city is encouraging affected residents to instead park in Wolf Willow in front of that rich guy's house. You know the one. You can park there again. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. With Pod Power, our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. And this episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a Pod Power shout out to Your Forest, a podcast about the natural world. Hear stories about the environment, renewable resources, conservation, forestry, hunting, fishing, and much more. This is a podcast for those who cannot live without the joys and wonders of all wild things. You can find Your Forest wherever you get your podcasts or at yourforestpodcast.com. We spent a good portion of the last episode talking about our initial reactions to the operating budget and the carbon budget that was associated with it. And we've also spent a good portion of the last week looking into some follow-ups to give some more context about what we said last week. And Mac, what did we find this week? One of the things that jumped out at me after our episode was that the number for the total carbon budget, the, the amount of carbon dioxide equivalent that we can emit until 2050 here in Edmonton. Where did that number come from? It didn't seem like a number I'd seen before. It's 176 million tons is what's in the carbon budget. So I went back and looked, and in the city plan, that number was 135 million, so 41 million less, or conversely, 41 million tons more that we can now emit from you know, now until 2050. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of strange. Like, there's got to be a reason for this. What is it? Uh, We're still working on it, Troy. But what we have come to understand this week is that there are two different numbers because there's two different ways of calculating this. So, you know, first of all, of course, that original 135 target that went, went into city plan was calculated in 2019. We're now three years on into 2022. Those numbers are going to change a little bit. 
But the biggest difference actually is the difference in the way it gets calculated to align with the Paris targets and also to calculate it a different way to, to align with something called the C40. So this is a network of mayors of nearly 100 world-leading cities. These are big cities all around the world. And they have a higher standard for emissions reduction for cities. They think big cities uh, have a responsibility to make greater reductions in emissions compared to everybody else. And so that 135 number, the lower number, the more strict number, is based on calculations that align with the C40's approach to calculating it. And then the higher number that has now shown up in the carbon budget is based on the just calculating to, you know, the 1.5 degrees for the for Paris. Now, the confusing part and what we're still trying to figure out is that in theory, <laughs> all of these calculations are based on the same idea that we hold global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius. But this difference in the way that they calculate it is uh, what accounts for, you know, the difference in that number. And actually, we did get a little bit of a hint at this last year. So I'll put this in the show notes. But back in the 2021 fall uh, SOBA, the operating budget adjustment, they did give an update on carbon budgeting. And they did talk about uh, in that report the difference between these targets, which are based on the Paris Agreement, and the budget, the fair share budget, which is based on the C40 methodology. If what you're saying is true, and all of this is designed around hitting 1.5 degrees C, hold the line, um, based on the Paris Agreement, doesn't it make it all feel a little bit wishy-washy meaningless? If the point of a carbon budget is that we can only emit so much carbon and there's disagreement about how much we can emit overall, Mac, that's like almost a 20% variance, isn't it? There's a huge variance here, which is why the number really jumped out at me, right? So that is the question. If we're trying to limit to 1.5, surely there's only a certain amount we can emit. Um but I think the argument from the C40 folks is that, you know, if we just divided up the global emissions that we can emit to hold temperature increases to 1.5 amongst all the cities, all the locations in the world equally, it's one number. And C40 is saying, well, that doesn't really make sense. Some people, some places should be more aggressive in their reduction. So if we do that, then you get a different number, right? And that's how those two numbers differ. Right now, our carbon budget, when you read it, it's got this burn down chart of literally how much CO2 we can burn. And it's also got not each individual item, but for each composite, so roads and transit, the amount of emissions that's expected to deliver or reduce. Maybe it is more useful to think not in terms of total tonnage of CO2, and in fact, some other metric of reductions. You know, if, if our goal is to be net zero, should we even focus on how much we're emitting or just focus on how much that reduces what we're doing? I, I don't know. I'm hard pressed to think that this is the good way to communicate this information if the budget can just arbitrarily increase because you calculate it differently. Yeah, I do think this is one of the problems with, you know, calling it a carbon budget and coming out with specific numbers like that, right? Because previous to having that amount, that budgeted amount and the, the information in the budget, we were really just talking about percentage reductions, right? Or sorry, a 50% reduction by, by 2030 with a 30% reduction in between. So there's like some percentage reductions. We know this much was emitted in 2005. You know, we know we have to get to net zero. Here's the percentage that we should reduce it by every, you know, so every few years or whatever. That's probably a better way to think about what we need to do and funding projects and funding things 
things in the budget that help us get to those reduction targets is what we need to be thinking about. I think that's what the carbon budget tries to get at by quantifying what does that reduction look like. But as we've pointed out last episode and lots of people have been talking about on Twitter this week, you know, that carbon budget and those numbers we're not really doing what we need to do to get those, you know, those uh, reduction targets that we're looking for. I heard a take that, you know, municipalities aren't the best enfranchised to uh, have emissions reductions. And totally, that is a valid case. It's the same thing where not using that plastic straw at A&W, sure, that helps. But systems approached on the big scale is really what's going to affect climate change. And municipalities are, you know, a component of that. They can do less than a federal government. They can do, do less than a provincial government. However, um, it is not true that they can't do anything. And in fact, Alberta municipalities are doing things because if we look south to Calgary, there's a very different climate budget being presented. Yeah, the city of Calgary recently released its 2023-2026 budgets. Uh, they did theirs all together in one big chunk. But, you know, even just the highlights in their news release, so not, you know, going through the budget and, and looking in more detail, just the highlights, $44 million in one-time funding for the operating budget to, quote, set the foundation for the work required to achieve 2050 climate targets. Uh, they also have, you know, another $40 million for mobility things like transit service and e-scooters, things that should help move the needle on emissions reduction. And then the capital budget also includes a significant amount of money for uh, climate-related things. So, of course, there's lots of money for transit, $600 million for public transit, um, but $42 million for reducing greenhouse gas emissions, mitigating climate risks, and preparing for the low-carbon energy transition. These are just the highlights. So there's clearly a lot more money in their budget. Granted, their budgets are significantly larger than Edmonton's, but still, lots more money seems to be uh, going into trying to hit those 2050 targets down in Calgary. It's interesting that uh, Calgary phrased it as, you know, setting the foundation for climate reductions, because that also came up in Edmonton mm -hmm. uh, in a letter that was sent to City Council from the Energy Transition and Climate Resiliency Committee. They were, quote, unanimously shocked and disappointed at the proposed budget and this is the proposed budget that we talked about last week that said we are not doing anything. And the letter went at some length to talk that the city needs to absolutely change course, but it gave a series of actions that the city needs to perform over the next immediate term, totaling around 500 million of critical green infrastructure items. And the letter alleges that these items are not the solution to climate change, but these are simply foundational in order to actually really tackle this problem. And we're not beginning to tackle it in the city of Edmonton. Yeah. And those are things you would expect that we really should be funding the bike plan, the comprehensive bike plan that council talked about earlier, more district energy network strategy and nodes, expanding e-bus infrastructure, you know, making city facilities more climate resilient. So the one bright spot, I suppose, in the carbon budget is that the corporation, the city of Edmonton itself, is a little bit ahead of the game on making progress toward uh, emissions reductions compared to Edmonton as a community as a whole. But, you know, there's still a lot of funding that should go into that, you know, making the city's fleet emissions neutral. So all the vehicles that it operates and uses and, you know, a whole bunch of other sort of foundational projects that would, you know, help set the stage for, you know, the bigger things we need to do some of which may be around the district planning and other city plan, you know, big moves that can really reduce emissions further. This all goes back to the climate chart. And when you look at the emissions reduction, it calls for pretty immediate steep 
decreases in emissions and it sort of tapers off. And that's because the 80% case for climate reduction, that's easy. You know, if you switch off coal to solar, it's Mm -hmm. very easy to do that. But Edmonton is a very sprawling city. To eliminate transportation emissions, that's a very hard problem to solve. And that goes to zoning, that goes to district planning, that goes to the generational shifts that are required in how people move about. And that's why finishing off is a lot of a harder problem. So for us to not be setting the foundation, it means that we are not only going to have a hard time solving those very difficult problems, we're just not going to be able to solve it. It's just not going to be possible. Yeah, I think you're right. And maybe another way to phrase that a little bit is maybe it's not easy to go from coal to solar, but it's known, right? Like we know how to do that. We have the technology to do that. It's a matter of funding and and, uh, marshalling all the resources to make that happen. Whereas, you know, getting to that last mile on emissions reduction will involve solving problems that we don't know how to solve yet. Like we don't have a solution for that yet. How do we how do we transfer mobility from emissions burning to emissions reducing? That is a big problem that we have, you know, the start of solutions to, but not the full solution there. All right. So, you know, whether it's 135 or 176, it doesn't really matter. Like we're going to get to the bottom of that, Troy, and you can find the uh, information when we have it uh, at taprootedmonton.ca. We're not anywhere close to either. We're not anywhere close. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was going to say. It doesn't matter what the number is. We'll figure out how the calculations work, but council it's in their it's in their court now to uh, do uh, to make the decisions necessary to change course in the context of all of this what's happening right now you know we talked about this mayor sohi is off in egypt talking about edmonton's leadership in municipal climate change action and emissions reduction i'd be very interested to hear what he has to say when he comes back and uh and how he spun this budget as a positive municipal leadership thing uh and also we had a big announcement this week air products which previously announced it's building this you know 1.6 billion dollar hydrogen energy complex in the edmonton area uh just got a whole bunch more money in federal and provincial funding. So 475 million to help build this thing. That is a significant amount of money, Troy, that could be going into the kinds of things that aren't funded in our budget. And I know it's a different order of government problem, but money is out there is kind of what I take from that news. And none of that money is going to my personal solar panels on my house. I am still salty about that Edmonton City Council put in the budget. You know, on a related note, we were talking about known problems and how we know how to do certain things to achieve some foundational climate goals. I think there's no better example of how delaying the known problem causes issues down the line than our good old Northlands Coliseum, which five years ago when it closed, there was a report to city council saying that it would cost around $10 million to demolish the Coliseum. And council at the time opted to say, nah, let's hold off. Let's keep the lights on. Let's keep the heat on. Let's keep securing this facility at a cost and just delay this decision. Of course, now we've got a new budget coming up and not in the capital nor operating budgets is $35 million, which is what it would now cost to demolish the Coliseum. Administration is proposing that we instead leave it there to continue rotting with the heat and the lights on. And maybe... Four years from now, we'll handle the 
whatever it'll be, $50 million, $70 million <laughs> to demolish the Coliseum. I mean, you'd think this would be a lesson that we'd have learned by now. This happens with everything. Overpasses, all kinds of projects that get put off. The construction cost goes up for any number of reasons. It happens to be right now, this budget in the middle of you know, inflationary times and rising interest rates. So I'm sure it's boosted that number even further. $1.2 million or almost $1.5 million to fund the building, you know, keep the lights on, so to speak, every year is what they'd rather spend. So a little bit of money every year instead of just taking the hit and getting this thing done. And as you say, you know, could have got this done previously. And what's interesting to me about that is there wasn't a question about that. The committee that had been brought together that I was part of, to decide what should happen. Everybody at the city, like, people were unanimous that we should not have two of these things. They should not be competitive. Obviously, the Cates Group didn't want it to be competitive. A city like Edmonton doesn't need to have two arenas. Unanimous, Mac? I seem to recall Stephen Mandel disagreed with that. <laughs> well, he tried, and then where did that go? He showed up at council, and that didn't go anywhere. I mean, okay, maybe unanimous is too strong of a word. The point is, like, there wasn't a lot of question about it. People thought we should demolish it. Why they didn't do it and why we are now in the situation where we have to spend so much more money is beyond me. It's also beyond uh, Ward Métis Councillor Ashley Salvador, uh, who said this week, quote, if we would have funded the demolition years ago with a lower demolition cost and a lower interest rate, we wouldn't be in this position now. Nothing is more obvious to me than we could have paid $10 million to demolish it in last city council's term. And instead, over that same period, we spent $5 million to keep it open while still increasing the bill. And now it's $35 million to demolish it. It's just bad planning. What is in the capital budget, though, is $53 million for the exhibition lands project. And so I guess to answer my previous question, this is probably why we didn't uh, demolish the thing is because even though people thought we should get rid of the arena, there was no agreement about what comes next. Council has approved the ex exhibition lands strategy, and it, this $53 million in funding is kind of about getting things ready for that. So it says engineering design, planning and development, land planning and development, subsurface infrastructure, that kind of stuff. But none of the other projects are on the funding list, including you know a new LRT station or a replacement for the Coliseum LRT station or any work in, in Borden Park. So you know, this budget will spend, if the council approves it as is, some money to maybe prepare for exhibition lands to do something in the future, but that won't happen in this in this budget cycle. One of the funding items that predated this budget cycle was something that happened during the pandemic, and that was the downtown vibrancy strategy and the associated grants. Uh, you'll recall there was around $4.9 million awarded between 2021 and 2022, and it went to about 53 projects. Uh, Taproot, if you go to the Taproot website now, it came out this morning as you're listening to this, dear listener, uh, did some reporting on where this money went. And Mac, I think we found some pretty interesting nuggets in there. Yeah, well, we didn't know where this money went, actually. So the $5 million was approved to be spent over 2021 and 2022, and then that was the last we heard of it until... Earlier this uh, summer, or late this summer, I guess, early in the fall, there was those letters from the mayor to um, the Downtown Recovery Coalition about how much great work he and uh, council and administration had done for downtown. And in there was this nugget about how much money had been spent. So we dug into that. We asked the city for the information and kept asking <laughs> until it was released to find out that these uh, 
you know, 53 projects have been awarded this funding. And so if you look at that list of projects, there's a pretty broad range of things that are on there, everything from Taste of Edmonton to Downtown Spark that happened, you know, with the, the large scale public art that happened in May, over 10, 10 locations. And there's some stuff for the DBA to commission research around return to the office and, and that kind of stuff. But I would say, Troy, looking at the list, to me, a good chunk of the things that got funded are events or things that happened one time. I looked at this list today. And the first thing that jumped out to me is that if you just sort by cost, the two most expensive events on this at $283,000 and $256,000 respectively are Taste of Edmonton and Carrie West, uh, which great festivals, you know, Edmonton institutions, glad we have them, but they are Edmonton institutions. They're going to happen whether or not this pot of money funds them. And for both of them to get the biggest chunk between the two of them, it's a full 10% of the entire funding pot. That seems, I don't know, absurd to me on events that definitely would have happened anyway. Yeah, I don't know that you can make an argument that that increased the vibrancy of downtown. Right. And I also was hoping to see more things in this list that were not just events, because sure, you have a one off event or a street festival or something, and it does increase vibrancy for a short period of time. But there's no lasting return on that investment, generally speaking. Right. The amounts of money in this list that are spent on, you know, things that might have uh, had a longer term impact are pretty small, you know. The downtown market got $50,000 for contributing to vibrancy and having outdoor events. Like the market happens already and already gets significant subsidies from the city of Edmonton. I don't know if that increased vibrancy. There are some things on there that aren't really about vibrancy necessarily, but are great to see. So almost $200,000 for overdose prevention and response teams from Boyle Street, which is good, to, you know, a good thing for us to be funding. And also uh, overdose prevention and response teams at the Edmonton Public Library, training medical professionals and out outreach workers there. I think those are important things. And maybe it's hard to argue that that's also about increasing vibrancy, but at least there's a bit more of a return to me on that investment. It's going to have a, a more lasting impact than a one-off event. One of the events that was funded was Grindstone's uh, Mural Massive Block Party, which mm -hmm you know, is an event as well. Um, I think we can agree that, you know, events aren't necessarily the best usage of this money. But at least with Mural Massive, the end result is, hey, a bunch of murals got painted downtown. And that, yeah. you know, we talked about Michael Fair and the dots. Murals alone don't increase vibrancy, but it does make the downtown more hospitable. And I think to your point about the lasting impact, no one ever said that, you know, there wasn't fun events downtown. We've always had Taste of Edmonton. We've always had Kyrie West. We've always had things like the Marathon and other big events downtown that really brought some life to downtown. But the problem is, if you go downtown past 4.30 p.m. on a weekday, especially in winter, it's this horrible, cold, hostile place that doesn't feel like there's any life in it. Public washrooms, more lighting, maybe even outdoor fire pits or things like that. These things that you have in places like Montreal that really do have that street life, even though they have winters just like ours, those are the kinds of things that I think would really increase the true vibrancy of downtown and were exactly what weren't funded here. To go even further, the crazy thing about it is that council and administration had already agreed with you that those are things that increase the vibrancy. The funding was supposed to be aligned with the 20 actions in the downtown vibrancy strategy. This is things like expanding public spaces, optimizing the four-season experience for pedestrians, 
um, a welcome package for new residents, making downtown a more innovative and smart place, uh, supporting return to work and opening strategies. There's maybe one thing about that in there, but lots of the actions got really no funding or there were no projects related to that funding. So that might be a problem of nobody applied for funding related to those things, or there could be something else at play here. Well, and let's talk about the something else at play here, because if administration knows what we need to get funded, we have these 20 actions that constitute downtown vibrancy. An administration has a bucket of $5 million. Why didn't administration fund these things? Why did they decide to do something else? Well, it wasn't administration that got to make the decisions here. So there was this committee that uh, ultimately made the the funding decisions. So there's Panita McBride from the Downtown Business Association, Chris Bisey from the Downtown Edmonton Community League, Anand Pai from NAOP, and uh, they also, I think, added a representative from uh, Explore Edmonton. And then I'm sure, you know, the city administration had some input into what kinds of things got funded. I mean, that's a great group of people, right? I mean, the DBA and DECL alone should have pretty good understanding of the kinds of needs downtown. I believe that Punita and Chris in particular both would have, you know, made decisions in a way that they think would benefit downtown as a whole. But at the end of the day, one of the problems there potentially is that they're not accountable to anybody except for the people that employ them potentially. Council itself has to make funding decisions about far smaller pots of money. Weren't we just talking a few episodes, Troy, about a couple hundred thousand dollars for End Poverty Edmonton. And council makes decisions about small pots of money for some unelected folks to make decisions about $5 million for downtown feels a little uncomfortable to me. And I don't know what the alternative is there because just having city administration make those decisions probably isn't the best idea either. But I will say that we do have other funding programs, thinking of the Community Services Advisory Board and some of the other things that we've we've had where we get provincial funding and we dole those out to uh, grant recipients. We have other approaches where we have citizens who are interviewed and selected by city council who make recommendations about where the funding should go, and then they do go back to council for approval. That's not what happened here. I think the other thing that this process is missing is I don't begrudge Taste of Edmonton for existing. I, I'm happy that it exists and I'm happy that it gets funding. I don't think that this pot is the appropriate funding pot. But, mm-hmm. you know, I'm happy that we support that festival. I think what we're missing here is that we have a set of criteria. We have these 20 points. Why wasn't this funding justified? Why wasn't there metrics, targets, and outcomes? Why wasn't there a connection to this funding is the best choice because it meets these X number of criteria? Why wasn't there a drive to have all of these criteria met by the different things that are being funded from this pot of money. Even without the accountability of necessarily being elected, the accountability of, well, we as elected officials have created this rubric. Let's make choices based on our policies. This is something that seems like it should be a no-brainer, but isn't something that was quite done here. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, I do enjoy many of those events and I took advantage of, uh, you know, lots of the things that happened over the last couple of years, Route 107 and the Pride events that were happened on my street on 104 and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, I kind of agree with Councillor Ann Stevenson, who we asked about this. And, you know, she said there isn't a lot of permanent installations or permanent changes to the physical infrastructure because of this. And so she'd want to see more of that in the future. I don't think it necessarily needs to be art installations or things either. But, you know, getting a greater return on that investment based on those 20 actions, based on that stated and approved strategy would have been a 
better way to go about this. Not sure we should just say, well, the next five million will be better, but uh, at least we now know how this this five million dollars was spent. Well, there's another small pot of money that's going to somewhere that left me scratching my head that came up this week that I wanted to talk about. And that's part of the plastic single use item reduction grant. Uh, This is in tandem with the city of Edmonton bylaw that uh, you'll recall, you know, takes effect on July 1st, 2023 and will prohibit many single use plastic items like plastic bags, styrofoam items, and will require restaurants to not provide cutlery unless explicitly asked for. Of course, this is after the federal single use plastics legislation comes into effect this December. But the city of Edmonton, in order to make this easier for business, is offering grants from $700 to $5,000 that can be used to cover the cost of reusable dishes, containers, and dishwashing services. Mac, I was scratching my head at this. Yeah, it does feel kind of strange that we passed this bylaw and now we are willing to pony up money to help people implement it. That's not usually what we do with bylaws. Uh, We just enforce them. Um, The one thing that did jump out at me that is potentially a reason why I could get behind this, Troy, is that uh, a condition of receiving the funding is that the applicants have to track the impact of their transition. So it is a way maybe for the city to get some data about the impact of this bylaw, which they wouldn't otherwise be able to get any insight into. Uh, You know, actually, you know, $73,000 doesn't get you a whole lot of administrative studies. If we're offloading the cost of studying this to businesses and in exchange we're giving them a grant of 700 bucks to buy some compostable containers. All right, Mac, you've sold me. This is less of a head scratcher. (laughs) Yeah, I also don't know how much you can buy for $700 in terms of reusable containers, but... It's something. It's something. We want to close with a final something. Um, We've talked about this before on the podcast, but uh, the Wolf Willow Stairs and River Valley, uh, these are, you know, the very, very scary steep stairs uh, that you can get to from the Fort Dimension Park footbridge. They lead up to the Wolf Willow neighborhood, and many people like to go park at the top of the bank and go enjoy our River Valley. But not so, said the residents of Wolf Willow. They petitioned their councillor and city administration and got parking restrictions implemented. No one else could park there except residents who, incidentally, tend to be pretty well off, but that's not germane to the story, of course. (laughs) But after the one-year pilot project, everyone involved, this is inclusive of residents, said, now let's not do this. This is really interesting, right? So this is a pilot project that actually served as a pilot, uh, which is amazing because we gathered information and made a decision about it. So it started on November 1st, 2021. Administration had surveys that they did both online and in paper. They had a, a page up on Engaged Edmonton, their their public engagement site. They had public meetings. You know, they gathered lots of information. They categorized where these people lived and some demographics and all that kind of stuff. And then, yeah, as you say, ultimately decided that this is not something they're going to continue. They heard that restricted parking discourages equitable public access to the staircase, which is like, yeah, that's what everybody said when this (laughs) pilot project started. Um, But also that, and I think this is the kicker, restricted parking might not be an effective solution to the concerns of residents who, you know, didn't like the fact that people were parking in front of their streets, uh, in front of their houses on the street. Well, one thing, Troy, that might be next if you look at the report, city administration suggested some next steps. Can you guess what they suggested residents do? Vision Zero Street Lab. <laughs> oh, so we're going to include with the uh, 
go 40. This is my neighborhood. Also, please don't park in front of my house. Is that is that the <laughs> solution here? I guess so. Yep. Well, if we ever want to become Wolf Willow-esque residents, we're going to need to read some ads and get that cha-ching going. And this episode is brought to you by Park Power. And I'm not actually going to read the ad copy this week, Mac, because I looked at my power bill a couple weeks ago and I saw that I was on the regulated rate as ideologically I support. I think utilities should be something that we just buy. Mm -hmm. But I looked and I was paying 17 cents per kilowatt hour for my electricity. And if I was to lock in to a rate, as with Park Power, it'd be 10 cents per kilowatt hour. That fundamentally doesn't make sense to me on an intellectual level, why you can <laughs> lock into a rate that's lower than the flowing rate and cancel any time, and why you can arbitrarily switch between the two. That doesn't make sense to me from either a regulation standpoint or a business standpoint, but it is true. You can do that. And listeners, power prices are actually going up, so maybe it's time to make like me who signed up for Park Power a couple of weeks ago and get over the ideological opposition to fixed rates and uh, deregulated power and maybe just sign up for a fixed rate uh, with the power company. You can do it with Park Power. Switching was easy. I just filled out a form and now they're my power provider. Pretty simple. They canceled my existing provider for me. Uh, you can learn more at parkpower.ca and you could tell them that I sent you uh, or don't. I don't get a kickback for it. Um, at least I don't think so. Mac, do we get kickbacks for that? No kickbacks for that. But you can feel good knowing that Park Power supports local community organizations. Perfect. Got that ad copy in right at the end. And that, of course, is the end of the episode. We will see you all next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipal.